To be clear, world communion is not some uh, recent fad or trend or uh, campaign that was cooked up as some kind of a, uh, a wild church growth strategy. Uh, it's actually been around for quite a while. And in fact, World Communion Sunday really begins in some ways at the very beginning, the very beginning of the early church in the first century. The church begins as a world church. Now, if you were around several months ago, back at the beginning of June, on Pentecost Sunday, we read the story of the day of Pentecost from Acts chapter 2. And this morning we're going to read that again, but I want to reflect on that story through a different lens today. And so once again, we turn to Acts chapter 2, beginning in verse 1. I'm just going to read the first 11 verses today. Listen to God's word for us this morning. When the day of Pentecost had come, they were all together in one place, and suddenly from heaven there came a sound like the rush of a violent wind, and it filled the entire house where they were sitting. Divided tongues as a fire appeared among them, and a tongue rested on each of them. All of them were filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other languages as the Spirit gave them the ability. Now, there were devout Jews from every nation under heaven living in Jerusalem. And at this sound, the crowd gathered and was bewildered because each one heard them speaking in the native language of each. Amazed and astonished, they asked, are not all these who are speaking Galileans? So how is it that we hear each of us in our own native language? Parthians, Medes, Elamites, and residents of Mesopotamia, Judea and Cappadocia, Pontus and Asia, Phrygia and Pamphylia, Egypt, and the parts of Libya belonging to Cyrene. Visitors from Rome, both Jews and proselytes, Cretans and Arabs, in our own language, we hear them speaking about God's deeds of power. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let us pray. Good and gracious God, may the words of my mouth, the meditations of all of our hearts, be pleasing and acceptable to you, O Lord. For you alone are our rock and our redeemer, and let all God's people say, Amen. Uh, so I'm just curious, uh, I know some of you have been around here at First Press for a while, uh, but I'm wondering, for how many of you is the celebration of World Communion Sunday, uh, either in this church or in some other church or tradition, something that you've done before? For how many of you is this familiar? Okay. Um, and then just so I can see the contrast, for how many of you is this brand new? Like, what in the world is this? Yeah, a few of us. Good. So it turns out that World Communion Sunday was started by a Presbyterian minister, the Reverend Dr. Hugh Thompson Kerr, who uh, in the 1930s was the pastor at Shadyside Presbyterian Church in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, uh, one of the larger churches in the denomination at that time. Dr. Kerr was elected in 1930 to be the moderator for the Presbyterian Church denomination, our highest elected office. And in part of that role, he traveled around the church in the U.S. He did a little traveling internationally to visit with some of our mission workers and our mission partners in other national churches around the world. And as part of that travel and part of that service, he felt a deep hunger and call to work towards trying to unite the church that he felt like was beginning to get a little fractured and separated around issues of culture and theology and politics and stuff. Sounds familiar, doesn't it? <laughs> the more things change, the more they stay the same. So Dr. Kerr had this idea about uh, kind of a symbolic way of trying to unite the church. 
that he called at the time Worldwide Communion Sunday. So after his term ended as moderator, he went back to his local church and talked to them, and they finally kind of got a hold of the idea, and in 1933, on the first Sunday of October, they decided uh, on a communion Sunday that they would celebrate this worldwide communion with the idea that they were remembering that not only are we a local church gathered here, in that case in Pittsburgh, here in Fort Collins, but we are, in fact, part of a global church where there are sisters and brothers in Christ who began gathering around tables hours ago in another part of the world and will continue to gather hours from now in other parts of the world as the sun makes its way from east to west all the way around the globe. Well, a few years later in 1936, that idea began to get a little traction, and the Presbyterian Church USA, that is our denomination, adopted this as kind of a church holiday. They put it on the denominational calendar. And then four years later in 1940, uh, what has become the National Council of Churches, what then was called the Federal Council of Churches, that is an ecumenical body of churches from across different traditions, decided to adopt this idea as well. And so now on this Sunday, you might discover if you go to a Methodist church or a Lutheran church or some other tradition uh, in our community or in a wide variety of other communities across the country and around the world that people will be celebrating World Communion Sunday. Several years ago, uh, the son of Dr. Kerr, also it turns out Dr. Kerr, because he's also a Reverend Dr. Pastor, uh, Hugh's son is named Donald Kerr, was reflecting back on his father's legacy, and in an article he said, you know, the concept spread very slowly at first about World Communion Sunday. People didn't give it a whole lot of thought until the Second World War, and then the spirit really caught hold because we were trying, it seemed, to hold the whole world together. Worldwide communion symbolized for us an effort to hold things together spiritually, not just, uh, you know, in terms of culture and politics, etc. Dr. Kerr said it emphasized that we are one in the spirit. We are one in the gospel of Jesus Christ. Uh, and in a few moments following the sermon, I'm going to invite us all to sing those words together uh, as our commitment to and affirmation of that idea as well. Now, most of you know that my early ministry was actually nurtured in the global church first, rather than the local church. Uh, in my 20s, I had the opportunity to be a young adult volunteer, first in Northern Ireland, uh, where the tune for our opening hymn came from this morning, thank you, uh, and then a year in Ghana, West Africa, uh, where my dashiki comes from, and I'll say more about that in a minute. And then I spent several years working on the staff of our denomination in the World Mission office, both helping to train and orient new volunteers going out to serve around the world, but also helping to educate and inspire local congregations as they tried to engage more and more uh, in the global church and in global mission. And so for me, I come at this with a particular experience and passion about what it means to be the local church in a global setting. As part of that work over the years, I began to realize that um, in the late 90s and early 2000s, as we were making that transition into a new century, the 21st century, that the rest of the world around us is becoming increasingly interconnected and interdependent. And we all know this, we've talked about this before, that staggering advances in information and communication technology, continuing ethnic and cultural diversification in our communities, an interwoven global economy, the relative ease and low cost of travel, all of these things expose and immerse us to an increasingly global context. 
Our schools are teaching our children and youth about other countries and cultures, languages, and traditions. Our employers offer workshops on diversity, training in cross-cultural and international business practices. The media brings the world into our homes and shapes the way that we understand and respond to global events and issues. Even the reality that that interaction and exposure heightens our awareness of disparities in the world, brokenness and conflict that we see around us. And all of these institutions and all of these arenas in our lives increasingly help us to understand ourselves as global citizens. That is, that we are citizens increasingly in a global village and not just in our own communities. But I began to realize, and I still believe passionately, that for we as Christians, a more important question is, what does it mean to be a global Christian? What does it mean to be a Christian in a global setting, a believer? Can we identify and model practices of faith in our own life that will assist us in our faith journey as we travel along what is increasingly a global itinerary? And if we want to cultivate spirituality among ourselves, among Christians, and other people of faith, we increasingly want that to have a global consciousness. That is, the reality is that most of us do not uh, go to mission conferences or maybe participate in mission activities. Some of us do, but maybe not the majority of us. Some of us perhaps have the opportunity to travel in or be immersed in other cultures, even in our own community, but perhaps others of us do not. But one of the things that does unite us often and mostly is the opportunity to gather for worship. This, our central act, our foundational practice as people of faith, and so it seems to me increasingly important that as we gather for worship and as we plan worship together, that it would be helpful for us, in fact, a better fulfillment of our faithful calling for us, if we would incorporate into worship global elements, that is, things that come from the global church, things that come from cultures other than, I think what's fair to say, the dominant culture within our current congregation and in our community However one would define that, and I recognize that's not a simple uh, uh, thing or a simplistic thing to define exactly what that is. It's nuanced more than that. Now, as we think about that, I want to offer a, a, a thoughtful word as we pause first to consider that when we appreciate elements that come from other cultures, as some of the songs we sing today will include, as some of the things around me this morning will include, we want to be careful that we appreciate culture and we don't appropriate culture. Now, what's the difference? Well, it depends on who you ask sometimes, and it's possible to stub toes no matter how thoughtful we are. But in general, the idea is that we want to be thoughtful that when we incorporate something that comes from another culture, we want to make sure that we understand the context of that culture, that we are thoughtful about the culture from which something comes, and we're not just snagging something because it's fascinating or entertaining or decorative, but that we truly understand and appreciate the culture from which other things come, especially as we're in a multicultural setting. And so, for example, this morning I'm wearing a dashiki, a garment that comes from the people of Ghana, West Africa. Now, if you were to see me just walking around Old Town on a random day wearing this, you might appropriately think, huh, that's odd that that white dude is walking around in an African shirt. And you'd be right. Out of context, it would be sort of weird. And because of that, I wouldn't just walk around Old Town in this. But in this setting, I can share with you that I lived in Ghana for a year. I was hosted by a local family. 
that helped me to learn their language and culture as we explored together what ministry looked like in that setting. And at the end of that year, they gave me this as a gift and specifically said to me, we hope that you will wear this so that other people will come to know who we are and like you, come to appreciate our language and culture and our faith and faithfulness as a church in Ghana. The symbol that is on this dashiki is called the Ginyami symbol. It's a popular symbol from West Africa. Uh, it comes from Ghana, but has been adopted uh, by other cultures in West Africa. Ginyami, translated in English, means accept God or accept for God, which is to say nothing in this world exists except for God. Nothing in our life happens except for God. God is the supreme being over all of us and all that happens. Now, we in the Reformed tradition of faith have another word for that, don't we? Sovereignty. The sovereignty of God. And so this Ghanaian symbol, Ginyami, really is a way of affirming for us one of these fundamental tenets of our faith, of the sovereignty of God. The cloth that's on the table today comes to us from Korea. Uh, specifically, it was purchased in South Korea, where a friend and colleague of mine, a Korean-American pastor, brought it back from South Korea and gave it to me, again, so that I could use it at times in worship and incorporate it into ways that we think about uh, the consciousness we have of the global church. This fabric in South Korea is called sekdong, and the meaning of it, uh, it can mean a variety of things, but one of the ways it has been used in Korean culture was during the Japanese occupation, a time when there seemed to be little hope for the Korean people. It was used in uh, clothing for children uh, as a symbol of hope, and so uh, the Korean people on their children would place their hopes for their future, even though they lived in a time that seemed to be hopeless. And so this symbol of hope, a gift from brothers and sisters in another part of the world, comes today to be a part of our service as well. These are ways that we can try to appreciate and integrate other cultures while also being sensitive to how we do that. Now, it's not perfect the way we do that, and no matter how carefully we do it, we're likely to step on toes from time to time. And yet I think it's worth working at that because there are important things that happen to us as Christians within this context when we do that. And here's a couple of them. One, by doing that we raise our own global consciousness. That is, we continue to remind ourselves, oh yeah, I'm not just part of a local church, I'm part of a global church. And that impacts the ways that we think about what's happening around the world and how we care about what's happening around the world. Several Sundays ago, we sang uh, a song at the end of our service, uh, Sent by the Lord Am I. My hands are ready now to make the world a place in which your kingdom comes. That song that we introduced and sang comes from the church in Cuba. Well, how meaningful now is it to have had a little taste of and connection to our brothers and sisters in Cuba when we see the tragedy unfold of a hurricane washing over parts of Cuba? We can think about and relate to perhaps just a little bit more deeply what it means to care about what's happening in that part of the world. And so when we incorporate these elements, we do so in part just to raise our own global consciousness as global Christians. But secondly, I also think it creates a spirit of hospitality in our congregation. We talked two weeks ago about what it means to be open and welcoming. Well, part of that is to be open and welcoming to those who come from something other than, again, however we would call our dominant culture here. And it may not be that an element reflects his or her particular culture, 
but it expresses an openness and a curiosity and a desire on our part to welcome people from a variety of cultures. Now, when I used to reflect on this with congregations in my work with World Mission, sometimes people would say, yeah, Corey, that sounds great, but you know what? We don't need to sing or say anything in Spanish in worship because no one who speaks Spanish goes to our church. And, and I would say, well, did you decide to put a wheelchair ramp to make your church accessible in because there were or because you hoped that there would be people who use wheelchairs that would come to your church? If you don't have a wheelchair ramp, no one in a wheelchair is going to come to your church. You put it in because you hope that you are being uh, welcoming of people who use wheelchairs. In the same way, we might incorporate Spanish from time to time in worship because we want to be a place where the Latinx community feels welcome to be a part of this congregation. And how we do that is probably not going to be perfect, but we will work at trying to be a place that offers an extension of hospitality to be open and welcoming. And all of this, as I said at the very beginning, to come back around, I think is part of what happens to the church in the very beginning in Acts chapter 2. And this morning, I want to reflect on the day of Pentecost through a different lens. Here you have, as Luke, the writer of Acts, makes perfectly clear, a group in the upper room of Galileans, that is, people who all come from one culture and presumably all speak the same one language. Outside of that space, you have this international gathering of Jews from all over the world, people who speak a wide variety of language and who now come from a wide variety of cultures. And it's worth noting that the celebration of Pentecost, like the celebration of Passover, which celebrates the liberation from slavery, Pentecost celebrates the opportunity that, uh, not the opportunity, it celebrates and acknowledges the gift of the Ten Commandments, that is the Torah to the Jewish people, a symbol of their unity in the midst of diversity that they're united around this teaching. And so we have this multicultural gathering outside, and the Holy Spirit's job is to communicate the message of the gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ, from a monolingual group to a multilingual group. Right? Everybody still with me? Now, there's two ways that this could happen. One is that those who are in the upper room could all speak their one language, and the miracle of the Spirit could be on the ears of those listening like people sitting at a UN meeting wearing headphones that instantly translate from one language into their language, the Spirit could have just as easily done the miracle that way, with the responsibility of translation being on the one listening rather than the one speaking. But that's not what happens. Did you notice? The miracle of the Spirit is for those who are in the upper room to speak in other languages, so that those who are out in the crowd hear, what does it say? In their own language hearing in their language. The responsibility for translation is on the speaker, not on the listener. And I think that lesson still applies to us today. That as we gather as the church, and maybe we are a bit of a monolingual, monocultural crowd, responsibility is on us to go out of our way to learn and to speak other languages. And in that, I don't just mean other spoken languages, like Spanish or German or Swahili or Japanese. Instead, I also mean in that the languages of other generations, of people who come from other demographics as well. It's on us to learn to speak in languages that are heard by others. One of our elders this last week was telling me a story about meeting with a young adult, maybe in her 30s, I would guess, 
who said, you know, the reason why a lot of my peers don't go to church these days is because the church doesn't speak our language. And by that, she doesn't mean Spanish, though maybe for some of her peers it does. By that, she means you don't really speak in the language that we speak. You don't seem to care about the things that we care about. You don't seem to be in tune with the kinds of things that we're experiencing in our lives. Could you take a little more time to pay attention and try to speak in our language instead of just expecting us to walk in the door and speak your language? That's part of the challenge, I think, for us today. Now, this morning, um, I want to invite you to participate in an exercise uh, just to get a, a small flavor of what we might be talking about. When you walked in this morning, each of you were handed a photograph. So I want you to find that photograph now. If for some reason you didn't get one, or if you're joining us from home today, uh, I put a few of the photographs up on the screen just so you'd have uh, one, and I encourage you to find one of those uh, to choose today, all right? Now, this is an exercise of imagination, and so the point of the exercise is not to be right versus worrying that you're wrong. The point is to allow your imagination to guide you, and here's what I want you to do. Take a close look at the face on the photograph that you have. Some of you might have a photograph of a group, and so just pick one of those faces if that's true for you. Pick a face. And I want you to imagine for a moment the name of this person. Now, given the ways that people uh, travel uh, and are mobile around the world in terms of immigration, etc., this person could live anywhere, right? Uh, but I want you to imagine, to begin with, a name for this person. And now I want you to imagine the setting in which this person lives. Uh, do they live in a house like you? Do they live in a, a multi-generational space? What kind of a space does this person live in? Where do they go home? Where does this person sleep at night? What kind of dwelling? And now I want you to imagine this person's uh, family. Who do they call family in this dwelling? Uh, is it a small nuclear family? Is it a big nuclear family? Is it a multi-generational family? Who is this person surrounded by most of the time on a daily basis? What kind of people? Siblings, parents, grandparents, etc. So you really kind of get a flavor for the setting this person lives in. And now I want you to imagine uh, that for some reason in your life, you know this person. Well, this person is a dear friend, someone perhaps that you know because of uh, a relationship um, or an experience in your life or an encounter, someone that you know well enough that you check in on birthdays and holidays, someone that you know well enough that you've shared meals around their table or perhaps they've been to share meals around your table. This is someone that you care about, someone that you love, someone that you know. And given who this person is, and where they spend time, and who they spend time with, and given your deep relationship with them, how would that change the way you think about what happens to them in their part of the world? If this relationship were true, how would it change the way that you pray for this person? And pray for the world. How possibly might it change the way that you experience the world? How would it change the way you watch the news at night? How might it change decisions you make about other relationships and friendships you have? 
How might it change your decision about the media that you absorb or the things that you read? How might this one relationship with somebody in another place impact the way that you experience what it means to be a Christian in a global setting? In a few moments, we'll gather around the communion table, and as we do, I invite you to hold this person, again, this imaginary person, but obviously it's a real person as well. Even if what you have imagined is not accurate, this is a real person. How might you bring this person and the realities of his or her life to the table in a few moments as we pray for the global church? This morning, I close with a simple story, one that was told to me many years ago, It comes from the Hasidic tradition of a rabbi teaching a group of his pupils. And he asks, students, how can you tell when the night has ended and the day has begun? One student shoots up her hand. Is it when you can see an animal in the distance and know whether it's a sheep or a dog? The rabbi smiles and says, no, that's not it. Another student raises his hand and says, well, is it when you can look in the distance and see a tree and tell whether it's a fig tree or a pear tree? The old rabbi smiles, and he says, that's a great answer, but no, that's not it. Well, then what is it, his students ask. He says, it's when you can look into the face of any man or any woman and see that he is your brother, that she is your sister. Because if you cannot yet see that, then it is still night. Friends, I invite us to join our voices together in an affirmation and expression of our unity in Jesus Christ. And so as you're able, I invite you to rise in body or in spirit again as we'll sing together a song that comes to us from the Church of Latin America. We'll sing uh, a little refrain together in English and then in Spanish and then a verse in English. And then we'll do that again, a refrain in English and Spanish and a verse in English together. And then that refrain one more time in English and in Spanish. We are one in Christ Jesus. Let us sing.